Welcome back to The Shorter, a podcast of The Shorter Catechism, where two pastors take 20-something minutes to confess their way through the 107 questions of the Westminster Shorter Catechism. I'm your host, Tommy Park, and I'm joined by my co-host, Stephen Spinaweber. And our goal for this episode and every episode, for that matter, is to demonstrate that The Shorter Catechism is for all and useful for all of life. Today, we're excited uh, to interview Dr. Terry Johnson. Uh, from Independent Presbyterian Church uh, on question four uh, of the Shorter Catechism and using his book, The Identity and Attributes of God, to guide our our conversation. So thanks for being with us today, Dr. Johnson. You're welcome. I'm honored to, to be a part of this. Um, first, can you just tell us a little bit about yourself, maybe your family, uh, your role there at uh, Independent Pres and um, I was born and reared in, in Southern California, brought up in a Christian home, a Baptist home, uh, went to uh, Los Angeles City Schools uh, growing up, then the University of Southern California, where I sensed the call to the ministry, uh, spent two years at Trinity College in Bristol, England, drawn there by the presence of J.I. Packer there at the time, and then two years at Gordon-Conwell in uh, the North Shore of Boston area. Five years in Miami as first an intern, then an assistant minister, and uh, ever since uh, January 1st of 1987, I've been the minister of the Independent Presbyterian Church. Uh, my wife is Emily, and we have five children and three grandchildren. Awesome. Can you share with us maybe when, uh, one, when you became a Christian, but also maybe when you were introduced to the Reformed tradition? Well, I'm one of those who, um, who doesn't remember not being a Christian. Uh, I don't re- recall a time when I did not believe, uh, going back to my earliest memories, I believe the Bible was true, I believe that I was a sinner, I believe that Jesus was the Savior of the world, that salvation was through faith in Him. Um, but I, look, I can look back and see punctuated moments where I was growing, when I was 14 was one, but then especially um, my sophomore year of college, I really spiritually took off at that point. Um, and it was a very gradual process of becoming Reformed, um, the, the beginning of which was my junior year of college. Um, well, actually a little bit before that, believe it or not, I, was, uh, I spent a summer at the Lighten Powerhouse on the UCLA campus, which was the old Kappa Sig house that uh, Hal Lindsey and Associates had converted into a Bible college or Bible school. And I lived there for a summer, moved furniture during the day uh, with Beacon's moving van and storage, and then um, attended classes. And I started there reading Francis Schaeffer. Mm-hmm. And he was a Presbyterian. And then I went back to USC and read um, uh, Roland Bainton's Life of Luther um, and did a term paper on Calvin. And I started to see some continuities there between people who had a very high view of the sovereignty of God, basically were covenantal in their theology, um, and um, uh, read Knowing God by Packer then, and that really solidified the decision that I needed to study theology from a covenantal point of view rather than um, the dispensational of of which I was awash uh, in, in Southern California. Um, so that led to the decision to go to England and um, studying under Packer 
uh, solidified reformed convictions on things like church government and baptism. Yeah, so as you're aware, this is a podcast on the Shorter Catechism. We like to ask our friends that we interview, uh, when were you first introduced to the Shorter Catechism? That's a good question. It might not have been until I was uh, an intern in Coral Gables, and that would have been in the fall of 1981. I had very little exposure to the confession or the catechisms up to that point. Hmm. And a group of us were going on three-mile four-mile runs um, every day, and we were we decided to start memorizing the Shorter Catechism in the process, and we uh, we memorized the first 39 questions the, up to um, the Law of God. Most of us who are ordained in the PCA, we have to know the Catechism enough to get ordained, but how has the Catechism been helpful for you personally? Um, and how have you seen it been helpful to maybe your church there, IPC, um, your family, and so on? Um, well, I think I think personally, um, I think it 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 is a wonderful tool for um, gathering the or, or or constructing that'd be a better word the the building blocks of theology, creating the filing cabinets within which. Biblical data, theological data is placed, giving a structure to the mind, I guess is what I'm saying, um, a, a structure to the theology of the Bible. Um, and I think it's been very helpful in that respect. I think the succinct, concise answers to basic questions, such as what is God, uh, such, a, such as... Um, um, and how many persons does this one God exist? The Trinity question. Um, they're, they're, they're very handy answers and give you, the, give you the basic outline for our thinking, the thinking of the church over the centuries on these issues. Who is the redeemer of God's elect? What is a sacrament? Um, they give you a, a starting place. I don't think that they're necessarily, necessary, they're, they're, well, they're definitely not exhaustive, but they give you a basic outline, a, a beginning point in which to understand you know, that a sacrament is a holy ordinance instituted by Christ, wherein by sensible signs, Christ and the benefits of the new covenant are represented, sealed, and applied to believers. So that just, it gives you a, a starting place. Um, and because it's comprehensive, a comprehensive survey of the gospel and basic uh, Christian theology and ethics and uh, piety with the, the ending with the, um, with the Lord's Prayer, it's a very handy tool. Very, very handy. Exposition of the Ten Commandments, exposition of the of the uh, Lord's Prayer. Um, it, uh, I, I just think it's a great, great tool, a great resource uh, for families, for individuals, and for the church. I teach I teach in our church the Shorter Catechism to fifth, sixth, and seventh graders uh, once every four years. My appreciation for it just grows uh, year by year. In fact, we just recorded those. Uh, in 15-minute segments, a little bit briefer than it would be if we were actually meeting in Sunday school. But, um, you know, it's, it's, uh, I, th I think it's a handy way to present the gospel to your own children. And last question on my end, Terry, or Dr. Johnson. Um, do you have a, just curiosity, do you have a favorite shorter catechism question and answer? If so, which one and why? That's a good question. I, I think the question for what is God 
God is a spirit, infinite, eternal, and unchangeable, and his being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. Um, that would be um, very high on the list. Um, a favorite question. That's hard to do. What is sin? Sin is any want of conformity unto or transgression of the law of God. Another very helpful justification, an act of God's free grace, wherein he pardons all our sins and accepts us as righteous in sight only for the righteousness of Christ imputed to us and received by faith alone. I mean, that, that works itself into my prayers at, at times. But both question four and uh, what is justification. Um, so probably uh, be, I'm going to have to say those are my probably my three favorites. Uh, who's the Redeemer of God's elect? I mean, that's up there too. Well, you did quote, what is a sacrament? offhand. So maybe, Tommy, we need to make another phone call and try to schedule him for what our sacraments. Uh, maybe we'll have him double dip on the program, which would be a lot of fun. Well, Dr. Johnson, thank you. So diving now into question four, uh, which is why we brought you on today. Question four, you said it. What is God? God is a spirit, infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in his being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. And as you said, you wrote an entire book on this question four, an expansion of question four, the identity and attributes of God, which is painted, uh, published by Banner of Truth. Was that in 2019 that was published? Um, no, I think it's older than that. Okay. Okay. Well, uh, a pretty big, you know, it's a short question, but a lot to be expanded on. And you did a lot of that in your book. So of all 107 questions that you could base a book on, why did you choose to write the identity and attributes of God, and on question four. Well, it goes all the way back to my college days. I began to read Knowing God by Packer when I was a junior. I mentioned that earlier. And I only got about halfway through it, and I, I, I gave up. I got distracted and sort of gave up. Found it, I found it to be you know, heavy and difficult at that stage. I came back to it my senior year and was overwhelmed by it and thought, you know, I, would, I wasn't sure if I was called to the ministry, but I was sure I wanted to study the Bible and church history and theology. And at that point, it occurred to me that, that I would love to go and study under the author of this book. This is so good and so wonderful that I want to go study under him. And I did make that decision. And I went to England for two years and had the privilege of, of taking classes with Dr. Packer. So. Um, I, then, I then taught that as a Sunday school class in the 1980s a couple of times, and then I taught it uh, to a Bible study in the 2000s, and, um, and then around 2011, I think it was, I thought that it would be a good, no, it was 2013, I thought it would be a good idea before the college students in Savannah were, got back in town in the fall to teach a 10-part series on the attributes of God. Because Packer had been so influential in my life, I thought I should do this series on the attributes for the returning college students. Uh, so that's, that's the origin of the book. And the 10-part series turned into 82 sermons. Um, it just grew underneath me. It just grew and grew. And I, the more I read, the more I thought, and the more I preached, the more I felt there was more that needed to be said on each of these attributes. And one thing just led to another, and that happened over and over again. And so it, it grew into 
um, 82 sermons, half of which are in the book Identity and Attributes. So that's only half of the sermon series. It's still, I still have um, the other half, which, which is, uh, touches on the grace of God, the mercy of God, the patience of God, uh, the blessedness of God, the fatherhood of God, um, the spirituality of God. Um, so it, it's a, it was a huge undertaking. It was a great, great blessing for me, maybe more of a blessing for me than, than any other single preaching endeavor um, of my, in, in the course of my ministry. Well, you say that only half of those sermons are published. We won't ask you to let the cat out of the bag if there may be a part two to the identity and attributes of God. But regardless, we'll probably go listen to those sermons now. Well, I'm hoping that there will be a part two. That right now is in the hands of the Banner of Truth editorial board. Um, so I'm hoping that they will. Um, I think that for it to be the holistic presentation that it was in preaching, I would like to see those in print as well. But, uh, you know, the, the variableness of the printing industry, the publishing industry um, is a thing to behold. Well, forward along this podcast is some friendly pressure or encouragement, however they like to take it. We would be excited by that. So with this book, in chapter one, you describe mankind's need to study the attributes of God. Could you summarize for our listeners uh, briefly why we need to study the attributes of God? Because many of our listeners, like yourself, like myself, and like Tommy, were Christians long before we started considering these deep and sometimes overwhelming truths of God. So why should they start to study the attributes of God now? What encouragement would you give or what is the need to study the attributes of God? Well, I think that we really don't know anything about ourselves uh, until we begin to understand the nature of God. Um, Calvin famously starts the Institutes. Uh, by saying that all knowledge consists of two parts, the knowledge of God and of ourselves. And then he says that we don't really know who we are till we descend uh, from the Almighty to ourselves. It's only in knowing God that we know who we are. At the very basic level, if I don't know that I am a creature made by the Creator, then I don't know the first thing about myself. This is why a child, who, a Christian child, is... is um, can answer more of life's basic questions than the most brilliant college professor who doesn't know that he's made by God. And so I think that you could start there uh, and, and knowing who we are, knowing our identity uh, depends upon um, our knowledge of God. And then to, to know what he expects of me, how I am to live, all that's tied into the nature of God. And uh, the reason uh, for so many of the cultural differences that we have throughout the world it has to do with what people believe is true about God. I mean, India is a product of pantheism. It is what it is because of pantheism, because of the doctrine of reincarnation and karma. And that's why, you know, historically, there's been so little sympathy with respect to the, the, the suffering of the needy, because it's all about karma. Um, and, and that's based upon an idea about God. and um, or the Islam and its 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 virtual fatalism, it's it's, it's a, that's based on its understanding about God. It's all according to the will of Allah, and some terrible thing happens. Well, that's the will of Allah. Uh, uh, 
so that there's a there's a fatalism in Islam that leads to a passivity uh, about uh, suffering, and I think you find the same thing in Hinduism. And all, all this ties into what you believe to be true about God, and then even among Christians, you know, at the center of our church is a is a giant pulpit. In the center of the Roman Catholic Cathedral down the street, there's a giant altar. What, what's the difference between those two? Well, it's a difference in understanding about the nature of God and the nature of the atonement um, and what Christ has accomplished. So it's the study of God and the study of theology more generally that, that we, what, we come to understand who we are, why we're here, where we're going. You know, shorter catechism number one, what is the chief end of man? Well, I can't answer that question if I don't know God. I'm here to glorify God and to enjoy him. Well, um, I, that, that question, the whole purpose, the, the destiny, the, um, the goal of life is unknowable without a knowledge of God. So I don't know why I'm here, and I don't know where I'm going if I don't know God. I don't know how I got here. I don't know why I'm here, and I don't know where I'm going. I don't know anything until I know God. And when I know the truth of God, then that opens the door to to all other knowledge, the self-understanding, self-awareness, uh, and my understanding of my, my own identity, who I am and why I'm here and, and what comes next. God is really at the root of all of our questions. You know, our tele-question, what is the point of life, our creational, where am I or why am I here? Um, how did I get here? Those creational questions we were created by God and for God. So that's excellent. I think it forms a basis for any meaningful question that we ask ourselves as Christians. So going back to the source is, is paramount in finding true answers to those questions. Uh, Dr. Johnson, of all these attributes that question four, and there are, are you know, a number, God's infinitude is eternality, being, wisdom, holiness. Of the attributes of God, when you were studying this uh, for the first time, which attribute or attributes did you find most difficult to wrap your head around or which ones stood out to you as being different than what you had thought previously? Um, the one that is, is the most difficult is easy to answer. That is its impassibility. Uh, so that the, you know, the, the 39 articles, the Westminster Confession both speak of God being without body parts or passions. It's that or passions part of it that is that is very difficult to wrap your head around it and come to a satisfactory um, way of expressing the truth that God is without passions um, and how exactly we're to express that and understand that is is very very difficult it's interesting I just read recently a book review on human emotions and the book made the point that we can't, we really can't understand what emotions are except as we describe a physiological response to a given set of stimuli. That if human emotions are physical. We don't usually think of them that way, but our emotional responses to things are, 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 our emotional responses are really what we're really uh, describing is a physical response. Fear is a physical, there's a physical, it's um, almost entirely a, a, a physical phenomena um, or um, uh, anger or uh, uh, hatred. These are, they're physiological and God is a spirit. He doesn't have a body. So whatever the Bible means when it talks about um, 
God's emotions, it has to be something very, very different than what we're talking about when we're talking about human emotions. And it's wrong, it's even idolatrous to project human emotions onto God as though what we experience were, is what he experiences. He is infinite. He is eternal. He is unchangeable. Those are the incommunicable attributes in his being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. Um, so I, th that's, uh, I, think it's, I think it's very difficult. I also think it's crucial because I think most people, um, you know, I think I can say this, when they think about God, they think of him as a bigger version of ourselves. He's, there's there's um, continuity between us and God, and and I'm to understand that such that He is really just a larger and better version of us. Whereas no, the Bible presents Him as wholly other. He is infinite; we are finite. He is eternal; we are we are temporal. So with um, the communicable attributes, there is something analogous in us. We are patterned after God, you know, we're made in his image. And yet there are some things, like you said, all of our emotions have physical ramifications uh, where God doesn't have a body. And also our emotions are usually prompted by forces outside of ourselves acting upon us, which is where you get into things like immutability and God, nothing happens upon God. Um, and so even that emotional language that we would use to describe or that, you know, scripture uses um, is different uh, than the way that we feel because we're reactive, whereas God never reacts, so to speak. So for me, I think uh, immutability, that fact that God does not change was probably the most difficult one for me to sort of grasp. Narrow in on one attribute that you mentioned in your book, you actually say in chapter seven that um, holiness is the attribute of attributes in God. Why, why did you say that? And uh, what distinguishes holiness from the rest of the attributes, making it the attribute of attributes? Well, the theologians tend to speak of it as the sum of the attributes. Um, all of the attributes come together in uh, God's holiness. It is, in, in a sense, the defining attribute. It's the one that's highlighted by the heavenly choirs when they cry out, they they don't cry out love, 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 or grace, 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 or wrath, wrath, wrath. They cry out holy, 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 so that it 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 serves in a sense as the the, the core attribute, the the attribute of attributes, the um, the sum of the attributes. You know, if there is a if we were going to identify among the communicable communicable attributes that attribute which encompasses all of it that 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 is you know the central characteristic of god is that he's holy which means that he is morally pure and perfect and apart from all that is corrupt and evil so and i, th I think that that for for me has been uh, the most important of the attributes in terms of practical uh, impact on worship and um, on Christian living. Um, you know, year, years ago, I listened to R.C. Sproul, uh, uh, R.C. Sproul lecture. This is when he was still up in Pennsylvania on the holiness of God, and it was a life-changing message. It was uh, 
the young RC at his best. And these, this was when he was doing the 45 minute lectures and it was, it was overwhelming. Uh, and that, 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 um, that it was revolutionary in my own life. Uh, because I think I think that as a young Christian, I I had that bigger version of ourselves picture of God, and to hear this kind of of uh, inspired presentation of the holiness of God made a a, a life a long impact on me. I think it was Mark Twain who said, "In the garden, God made man in His image, and ever since, man has been returning the favor that we've yeah. been." patterning God after our own image. And it's, uh, that's pretty striking how holiness describes God as being other, both in his being, wisdom, power, holiness, just in all of his attributes. So that's really helpful. But the holiness of God is one of my favorite RC books. Uh, Dr. Sproul is actually the one who I credit with making me reform what is reformed theology. So, You know, Carl Truman uh, got on my case a bit uh, because um, I quote from the old dust cover of the Jethro Tull Aqualung album, the backside of which she has lit, written in what, what looks like monastic script, um, in the beginning man created God, and then he goes on from there. Um, and, you know, in his own um, probably um, unaware, I don't know if he was re really aware of what he was doing, but any, anyway, uh, I forget the name of the guy who led the band, but anyway, um, they, they were onto something. I mean, that was—it's true. It's—I think that that's what—that's Romans one. I think that's what humanity has been doing since the garden is creating God in our own image and the image of of creatures uh, uh, and abandoning the Creator um, and the distinctives of the Creator. And of course, people don't want to deal with a holy God. They don't want to deal with a God that's infinite. They don't want to deal with a God who's almighty. All that makes us very uncomfortable. And we would just as soon have a, have a God who, like the Greek and the Roman gods, is, is uh, just a bigger version of ourselves and, and in many ways as corrupt as we are. Um, that's, that's a lot easier to deal with than a God who is infinite and holy. Uh, Dr. Johnson, going back to kind of your early college days, what maybe chapter or attribute of God kind of got a hold of you first? Um, maybe was there a chapter in knowing God that kind of started letting the, the dominoes fall, as it were? Um, he, he, yes. Um, I was very impacted by the two chapters on wisdom, God, wisdom, and ours, and God only wise, I think were the name of those two chapters. But uh, the one that probably made the biggest impact was uh, the chapter on the second commandment, and I forget what the name of that chapter was, where he gives an exposition of the prohibition of, of uh, images. And I think that that took me places in my understanding of God that I had never had before um, about the, the impossibility of forming um, images, whether it's statuary or pictures, that are adequate as a representation of God. Uh, that was an eye-opener for me. I think it has been for many, many people as well. Um, you know, there, there, you, you cannot create an image of God without uh, creating an idol in the process because nothing creaturely is adequate as a representation of the God who is infinite, eternal, and unchangeable. 
And um, so that was a Copernican moment, you know, a revolutionary moment for me reading that chapter. And you've kind of given us some nuggets through this interview, but maybe clearly in a couple points, how would, how would you encourage uh, fellow believers as they study the attributes of God, how that could be helpful in everyday life? Maybe their prayer life is what you mentioned with uh, what is, uh, justification, what is God and, and worship um, and so forth. Well, let's start with worship and prayer. Uh, take the, you know, the little memory device, ACTS, adoration, confession, thanksgiving, supplication. I think adoration is probably the single most neglected aspect of prayer. Um, whenever you get a group of people together and they begin to pray, you know, we have a 6.30 a.m. prayer meeting. And uh, as much as I have pounded the table to say, all right, let's spend some time just in praise and adoration. Um, it just comes with great, great difficulty uh, for your average gathering of Christians. But when you go and look in the Bible, you see, you know, from Psalms, uh, Psalms 145 to 150, for example, or David's great prayer in, in uh, 1 Chronicles 29 at the dedication of the materials to be used in the building of the temple. He, he just rehearses the attributes. Thine, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty. Thine is the dominion, O Lord, and thou, thou dost rule over all. Both riches and honor come from thee, and thou dost rule over all. And in thy hand is power and might. You know, and on he goes. Um, Jeremiah 32, God is great in counsel and mighty indeed. Uh, Psalm 145, uh, he's great and greatly to be praised, and his greatness is unsearchable. And so, so the Bible's full of praise, um, and I think as you study the attributes of God, you become, you come to see more and more that which makes Him praiseworthy. Go to the next, the C, confession of sin. Well, I think when you encounter the true and the living God, you're going to very naturally transition into confession, because He is holy and we're not. He's fi infinite; we're finite. Um, he is pure; we are corrupt. And when you contemplate the attributes of God, it leads very naturally to confession of sin. So Isaiah's look, you know, has this vision of God on his throne, and the seraphim are crying out, holy, 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 and what's the first thing out of his mouth? Woe is me, for I'm a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. You, you, you contemplate, you catch a vision of the glory of God and of his holiness, you're going to be, you're going to be moved to confess your sin. If you confess your sin, you're going to be moved to thanksgiving for all the benefits of redemption and the fact that, uh, you, you know, you enjoy the good things of this world and that the earth hasn't just opened up and swallowed you whole into hell. So it, it cultivates a sense of gratitude because all that we have are gifts from God's hand. And then if you, you know, if you have a vision of God's power and of his goodness, then and, and as we have experienced that in Christ, uh, then we take our petitions to him, our supplications, and we do, we do so with confidence. God is now our father. We, uh, through redemption, have been brought into the family of God. And so, so I mean that the impact is, uh, is immediate. It's immediate. It's um, clear. Um, it's profound on both worship and, um, and 
on prayer. Now, so when I became reformed, I, I referred to that experience as uh, blowing up the little box that I had God placed in. And I knew I couldn't worship the same way anymore. It was a much bigger God than I had imagined as an undergraduate. I, ha- I, had, I had him contained in certain areas. And, um, you know, I'll, I'll, one of the things I read that, uh, and I actually read this on the beach at Santa Monica the, night, the day before I left for England, was Packer's introduction to John Owen's The Death of Death and the Death of Christ. I mean, it, it just blew apart uh, my whole concept of what, who God was and what Christianity was. Um, it made an overwhelming impact on, on, on me. And so that's where the Copernican revolution comes in, where, you know, where the individual believer gets moved out of the center of of his or her universe and God gets put in the center. And and he's where he belongs. And then we're off to the side where we belong. We're no longer the center of our own individual universe. And I think it's the study of the attributes that promotes that process of, of abandoning the idolatry of self that we're born with and uh, to, to turning ourselves to the, the worship of the true and the living God. As we wrap up here, we'd like to give our listeners some resources as, so they can continue this conversation. So what, are, what would be the next resource? So if we would tell our listeners, read Knowing God, read The Identity and Attributes of God by Terry Johnson, what would be that next book or resource on your list that you would hand somebody? Okay, so I would say for the baby Christian who is, just wants to start reading on this subject, I would say read um, The um, Attributes of God by A.W. Pink. It's a great little book. It's about 100 pages. He's very succinct, and yet he's, he writes with um, a lot of energy and insight and inspiration. Uh, so I think that's a very good first book on the subject. Um, for, if you're more ambitious, then I think you step up to knowing God. Uh, if you're then a little more ambitious, I would say read the 130 pages of, of uh, George Swinnick in the, I uh, forget which volume of his collected works. Uh, but he, he wrote what, what he entitled The Incomparableness of God. It's absolutely incredible. 130, 133 pages. It's like the Reader's Digest version of the next work that I want to mention, which is Stephen Sharnock's 1,100, 1,200 pages on the existence and attributes of God. I obviously borrowed from his title for my title, mm-hmm. but um, existence and attributes is, is just extraordinary. I mean, it's, it's, it just is absolutely extraordinary. Um, somehow, for 1,100 pages, he sustains insight after insight that illuminates, that inspires, that challenges, that encourages. Um, it's, um, it, it's, it's, I sometimes think of the English Puritans of that period, that they, they were just um, from another planet. Uh, how did they possibly get so deep and yet um, have such insight? and? And and such wisdom. Um, so so Sharnock, uh, you know, and, and a, and a uh, um, not on the attributes itself, but um, similarly, William Gurnall's "The Christian in Complete Armor," eleven hundred pages on eleven verses of Ephesians six. Same thing. 
page after page after page. You just want to underline the entire book. And, you just, and he doesn't, they don't repeat themselves. That's the other thing. They don't seem to repeat themselves. Sharnock on just the goodness of God, that is the equal, in my estimation, of John Owen on the mortification of sin. It is extraordinary. The English language fails me to, um, to really do justice to how spectacularly good Gurnall and Sharnock and Swinnick are. They're just phenomenal. So what I, what I recommend people do is three pages a day. Start reading the Puritans. Um, you could use identity and attributes as an introduction to them. But, but read, you know, don't be too ambitious. Just read three pages a day. It takes 15 minutes or so, 20 minutes maybe, as part of your devotions. In three pages a day, you read a thousand pages in a year. So you'll finish Gurnall, you'll finish Sharnock. Um, you can you can work your way over a lifetime through these rich devotional classics, um, and it'll bless your soul. So that's my that's my recommendation for resources. Now that's a great encouragement. Uh, as we wrap up, last question. Uh, where can our listeners find you and your resources? I know at the very beginning you mentioned uh, you're walking through the Shorter Catechism. I'm pretty sure that's on the Sermon Audio. Um, well, you can go go to Sermon Audio, or you can go to the Independent Presbyterian Church website. And there's a tab there for another uh, website called Reformation Today. And, um, you know, I've written a lot of stuff over the years you know, I think most of it's probably not of much use beyond my own congregation. But the reason why I've written so much is that I have had the discipline since I was in my 20s of writing longhand the Sunday morning sermon. And, you know, if you do that about 50 weeks a year, you got about a 500 page book every year. And you do that for 35 years, you got 35, 500 page books. Um, so I've written a lot because of that discipline. I've never preached from the manuscript. Um, I preach from an outline, but I've always written that Sunday morning uh, sermon. Um, so a lot of that stuff has been collected into booklets and pamphlets and um, that sort of thing. And so that, there'd be information about all that that's available at those two places, ipcsab.org and uh, Reformation Today. Well, awesome. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Johnson, for joining us today. Uh, thanks for... Uh, serving us well uh, in your church there at IPC. Uh, it's great to have you. You're very welcome. What is God? God is a spirit, infinite, eternal, and unchangeable. In His being, wisdom, power, Justice, goodness, and truth What is God? God is a spirit Infinite, eternal, and unchangeable In His being, wisdom, power, holiness Justice, goodness, and